money is a weird agent. We need it. It also makes us uncomfortable. And it makes many employers, thankfully not too many of my clients, but many employers think, I'm paying you. Do what I'm asking slash telling you to do. Mm -hmm. If you don't want to do it, I can pay somebody else. That idea that this is a good job. If you don't want it, there will be somebody else who wants it. Maybe that's coming into question for the first time. Welcome back to the Career Therapy Podcast, where we explore the hidden side of modern work, help you turn procrastination into job search motivation, and teach you how to stress less, earn more, and change careers with confidence. My name is Martin McGovern, founder and lead coach of Career Therapy, and I'm excited to introduce our guest today. Please welcome Liz Kislick to the podcast. Liz is a management consultant, executive coach, TEDx speaker, and contributor to Harvard Business Review and Forbes. She spoke at TEDx Baylor School on why there is so much conflict at work and what you can do to fix it, and is the author of Workplace Wisdom, How to Resolve Interpersonal Conflicts in the Workplace, available as a free ebook if you head over to her website. In today's episode, we talk about conflict, including the strife that is bubbling between employers and employees during this time of the great resignation, how using the phrase poor baby can help you build empathy, and what you can do to control your inner conflict so that you can stop reacting to things and start leading your career in a balanced, empathetic way. Also, my favorite part of the episode was when we asked the question, is this person being malicious or just stupid? <laughs> so listen in for that. If you like our show, please subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes. We love hearing from you and your support enables us to keep curating conversations like this to help you in your life and career. Now grab a cup of coffee or tea and settle in for our conversation with Liz. Today's episode is brought to you by HireEct.us, a free app that lets hiring teams and candidates instantly chat about incredible job opportunities. If you're a hiring manager, CEO, or recruiter, download the HireEct app to see a curated list of talented individuals and accelerate your hiring process 10 times faster than traditional ways. And if you're a job seeker, join the platform to start talking to decision makers at startups who are ready to hire. Businesses grow faster when everyone is communicating seamlessly. Download HireEct.us, that's H-I-R-E-C-T dot U-S today. You know, as I was looking through your stuff and I was, you know, digging into the conflict work that you've been doing, I think there's going to be a lot of really interesting things we can discuss today. Um, before we get into it, are there any topics that you've been exploring recently that are just like really exciting to you and top of mind? Um, I think everybody, I shouldn't say everybody, but <laughs> the, um, the what's ahead is mm -hmm. really something. I mean, nobody knows what's going to happen with Omicron, Omicron, et cetera. So um, different people are looking at different things, but there's a level of stress that there wasn't just before Thanksgiving when people were feeling, oh, we can be together again. Um, so that's up right now. Beyond that, it's more, I think, the stress... Um, Clients that are experiencing good business growth, et cetera, are worried about holding on to their folks, are worried about where will they find additional folks. That's, that's been going on for a couple of months already. And um, the areas of conflict, those don't change so much. I mean, this, the things that people get twisted up over, they get twisted up over. That's, that's <laughs> just true. There are greater difficulties in some ways on video, not having easy access, not being able to drop by. Uh, but in some ways, it's better to have to schedule. It's really weird 
whatever happens, you can find some good in it and you can find some bad in it. And it is just like all of human existence. <laughs> it's so true. It's so true. It's, it's just people, you know? Well, and it's, and we'll just kind of go right into it. I think one of the interesting things that, you know, back when I was in my office days, um, you know, one of the biggest conflicts that people complained about was the fact that no one would leave them alone and they couldn't get their work done and they were constantly being interrupted at their desk. And I know when I was in corporate, uh, I sat at this, uh, this cubicle that was right at the entrance of uh, the, the section of the building we were in. And so everyone walked right past me all day long. And I'm an anxious person. So like, number one, that was just like nerve wracking as hell. Right. But number two, it also had the unfortunate position of having the snack table right next to me. So there oh, was goodness. just like a pile of donuts and, and bagels and the pizza all would day. get put out at lunch and everyone would come over there to eat. And I would get interrupted by every single person that came over to grab a snack throughout the day. So it's just hilarious how like, you know, you think, oh, well, you're in the office, you're more productive. But I've personally found that that was probably the least productive time of just dealing with all these people eating all this food. Um, but it, it is interesting to get into this conflict and these changes that are happening in the world, because I think um, there's two kinds of conflict I really want to dig into today. Uh, the first one is interpersonal conflict, which I think there's going to be a lot to be said. But the second one is also the internal conflict that I think a lot of people are feeling, um, especially in regards to the great resignation, right? The great resignation has this huge, you know, uh, employer employee conflict that's happening of like, the rising up and the leaving and all that kind of stuff. But there's also the internal conflict people are feeling of like seeing this happening and going, should I? Maybe I should. What's going on here? Uh, should I quit? And so I'm curious, like, how have you seen, we might get into the, into the COVID stuff and things like that, but how have you seen the great resignation either fuel or um, empower people when it comes to conflict? Okay, Martin, that's a really good and nuanced question. <laughs> I, I like that a lot. So I'll have to dig a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm seeing several different things. One is there are some people, not the majority, who are really changing their lives. Everything was so disrupted anyway. Sometimes the best time to make change is when everything's changing, but that's not true for everybody. That's easier, for example, if you don't have children in a particular school district so you can go wherever you want. There are different kinds of things that anchor people to a particular geolocation, to a particular um, schedule of work. There are a variety of things like that. And when those aspects of work are enmeshed in the way you live, it's much harder just to peel away from them. But for people who don't have those ties, some of them have just said, you know, I could probably do better. And sometimes without that much forethought, interestingly. I mean, I, I am a planner and I think part of why I'm so careful about what everybody else does is because I'm a little anxious myself, so I really want to be on top of it and make sure it goes well. I know I can recover from anything that's negative, but I don't want negative. Mm -hmm. So um, the idea of just saying, oh, let me just change my whole life. I'll move. I'll quit my job. It'll be good somehow. I think on the one hand, that's really courageous. For some people, it's probably foolhardy. But I think that's the kind of departure that really surprises an employer, where there weren't signs of unhappiness, and there weren't signs of what I'll call nudginess, you know, that kind of slightly detached, maybe just a little bit negative, not going along with everything. When those people quit, you expect it, but those people quit less. My experience is 
those people tend to stay because they're comfortable in that kind of frame of, I don't say yes right away. I, you know, I've been here a long time. I've seen these new initiatives come and go. That kind of stance, right? I mean, you've seen that. Oh, yeah. So, um, so we have the people who just say, I'm changing my life. And I think some of that's unanticipated altogether. What's interesting is good places now, they're really thinking about this. So if they have any sniff, whiff, that somebody might be thinking about leaving, some of them are having stay interviews Ooh. as opposed to exit interviews. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Um, but that's really, let's talk about what you want to accomplish here and how things are going. And it's framed on the upside so that theoretically, we, the employer and the employee can work on this together. And when you've got that kind of um, shared process, I think it's more likely to hold people. The other thing though, I'm sure you've been hearing about this, is the big debate about do we make a counter offer? I'm very wary of counter offers. My experience, not as an employer, but as a consultant who's in a lot of places, is that very often you can match or up the ante and keep someone, but often they still have one foot out the door. They, it may content them in the very short term, but whatever it is that prompted them to be looking or accept the call in the first place, that part of their mind doesn't shut off. So unless you can truly give them the new experiences they're looking for, they're often not content to stay in their old job just because you gave them more money or even a bigger title. The work itself really has to change for them to decide it's worth staying in the environment they already know. That's so important because, yeah, like you said, you can make them, you can delay, but you might not make them stay because that, that really is the thing. It's like this seed of change. Once it gets in someone's head and they're like, I need to get out of here. It's very hard to change that. And I think this is one of those things that sort of almost breeds conflict as well in the work situation, because, you know, we have different incentives, uh, employees and employers have different incentives. And I'm always trying to get people to think about the incentives of the person that they're talking to in order to better understand why the communication is failing, why things aren't going well. And so um, when it comes to these employers, like their incentive is, of course, like have a smooth running team, not have too much turnover, you know, uh, make the bottom line grow and all this different stuff. And then the employee is like, well, I'm going to try new things and I want to have experiences and I want to learn and grow. And sometimes those are in conflict. Like I've actually heard people right. say, uh, you know, we won't promote this person because we don't, because they're so good at what they do. We don't want to lose them oh at, in this role, you know? And yeah. I think really when we get down to the core of a lot of these things, it really is sort of a a battling of incentives. How have you sort of seen incentives play into workplace conflict and how things uh, pan out? I'm going to shift that just a little bit because, you know, employment is a challenging relationship. You are giving yourself theoretically, and in many ways, you would hope your best self, you're there you might as well be who you are and, and give the good that you have, right? Let's do it. Let's make it exciting, all of that. Um, but you're doing it for money and money is a weird agent. We need it. It also makes us uncomfortable. And it makes many employers, thankfully not too many of my clients, but many employers think, I'm paying you, do what I'm asking slash 
telling you to do. Mm -hmm. If you don't want to do it, I can pay somebody else. And that idea that this is a good job. If you don't want it, there will be somebody else who wants it. Maybe that's coming into question for the first time. Not for everybody, because as we all know, there are leaders who are not so sensitive to the needs of employees or to the humanity of employees. I'm very fond of um, a particular Buddhist meditation called Just Like Me. And it is in the area of compassion meditation, loving kindness meditation, that every other person, as much as I can't stand them, I would never behave the way they behave, all those things, they're actually just like me. The things that I want, they want. They may look a little different, but they want them. They want to feel safe. They want to be loved. They want to feel successful in what they're doing, just like me. I would say just like I do, but you get the gist. Yeah. Okay. Not enough employers think about that ever or before they go into a tough conversation. So the idea of empathy has been very popular. And I think that's a great thing. And there are some people who actually can feel the way someone else feels. That's a great thing if you want to be happy together, you want to have a cry together, you want to be angry at a competitor together, whatever that is. But if you actually need to persuade someone of something or figure out what's really going on, feeling the way they feel may not be as helpful as perspective taking, as actually thinking about what are the range of options that could be going on here and what might cause that to be? And what could I say that would help stabilize the situation, create hope in the situation, get a better result, et cetera? And just like me is one way of saying whatever this situation is that we're facing, might end well, might not end well, let's be in it together. Let's figure it out together. I think more disclosure about why we need what we need as the employer or the employee is better. But you have to be able to trust the other person to do it. And I don't mean trust them with your deepest, darkest secrets, but have confidence in the ways that they will react and that they will be on the level and that they won't fall into drama and um, that they can take it, that they can take hearing what the real thing is and have the groundedness, this is a big ask, have the groundedness to think about it and respond, even if that means saying, wow, I was not expecting this conversation and I can see that it's meaningful to you. I need some time to think. Let's get back together tomorrow. Yeah, I really like that. I like the meditation idea because it it encourages people to slow down and to think and to and to not make hasty decisions. Um, and I think a lot of what you're saying it's like also time and place in your career, right? Early in your career, throwing everything out the window and starting fresh might be a bit easier. But uh, one of the big things I had a client and. Uh, he was talking about, he's like, all right, if I don't get this internal promotion, I'm just going to quit the whole company. And I was like, Ooh, watch out. Cause I'm working with another person who doesn't have a job right now. And is at a very senior level. And those are hard to find. Sometimes it maybe takes a lot longer uh, to find those roles. And I had those two people talk to each other and they both evened each other out a little bit. And it's, it's so fascinating. Cause you know, one of the things that you're, when you talk about the empathy, when you talk about all these things, uh, it sort of reminds me of another thing you wrote about, which is like your employer is probably just as stressed out and anxious as you are. And they're having a hard time. And a lot of what um, I hear when people complain, when I complain, my, myself included, is like, 
when you're done complaining and you, if you were to record yourself and listen back to it, you're like, well, I don't do any of those things that I said that they should do. <laughs> it's like, I think we fun when I hear people complain, I'm like, they say things like this person should be doing that and they should be acting this way. And the employer should be getting back to me in X amount of time. And they shouldn't be asking me to do a take-home assignment because that's free work and they shouldn't. And I always look at that stuff. And I'm like, but you're asking me, your career coach to do free work for you. And you're, and you don't show up on time and you don't, <laughs> it's oh so, God. it's so funny how uh, we, we have these blind spots in, in our behavior and in our view of the world and our, our kind of double standard for others and ourselves and things like that. So I'm always curious, like when you think about the employer being stressed, what should people keep in mind about just what everyone else is going through as well as yourself? Okay. So I think part of what you're describing is we all have the same fears to different extents, mm. okay, and they manifest differently because of the structures we happen to be in. The CEO lives in a different structure from somebody four levels down, and the structure protects the CEO even if they're anxious, okay? Whereas the manifestation of that anxiety or that depression because we are talking a lot more about mental health these days, mm -hmm. um, or neurodiversity is another thing. You know, we have more people in the workplace who have um, ADHD or who are autistic. Any of these things, if your structure doesn't protect you, you are more vulnerable. That's part of what employment does because, you know, in our world, it occurs in what is typically a hierarchy. More power on the top, less power on the bottom. That's just a fact. So you have to start there. But inside that carapace and all of that structure, yeah, we all get fearful that somebody won't like us. The only people who don't get fearful about that are actually not healthy themselves. And they're probably doing bad things because they don't really know how to people. So um, that's a different case. I'm talking about right now, good people who happen to have differing levels of power. So when you've got that, recognizing, oh, my boss must hate having this conversation with me the way I hate having the conversation with them, right? Who wants this conversation? It's awful. So good. If you could set your boss at ease, what a great investment of your emotional energy. I mean, to say that guy has more power, so I'm going to wait for him to be good to me, that is that's a failure proposition right there, okay? Because that guy has power. He doesn't actually have to notice what squirrely way you're feeling today. He's feeling squirrely because pressure from shareholders, pressure from children, pressure from flat tire. Who knows? It doesn't matter. Whatever we can do to extend grace to each other, Really, um, I don't know why I'm thinking about all this Buddhist stuff. Today. I've, I've studied some Buddhism. I myself am not one. But um, the Ram Dass says something like, we're all just walking each other back home. Now, that gets modified in business, again, because there's money involved as opposed to love. And there are specific responsibilities and all of these structures. But remembering the other person's humanity seems to me that that's a fantastic tool if you want to think in a businessy way about managing up. What does that person need? How can I help them get it? I write a lot in you know, what can seem like a sort of mercenary way about the value of helping your boss look good. But that's something we all need. And we need it, to your other point, 
we need to look good to ourselves too. Your boss wants to feel like a good person dealing with you, not just a successful person accomplishing their targets. They actually want to feel good about their conversation with the employees. They want to feel they did it right, that they were responsible, that they were kind. That doesn't mean they're skillful at it. So if you can help them a little, not only does it give them more practice so they can get more skillful, but if they feel good when they're talking to you, they may want to talk to you more. That means you get to have more input. Seems like a good, <clears throat> excuse me, seems like a good thing. You're taking their money anyway. I love it. It's, it's so true because, uh, you know, when it comes to conflict, interpersonal conflict and all these things, no one thinks they're the bad person. That's what I find so fascinating. And everyone's complaints, they're always the hero in the story. And I'm, I tend to be a, uh, an annoying person that always takes the opposite side of whomever I'm talking to. And so it's like, this is what's happening. And I'm like, this is how you're creating that. And then people get all like, ah, <laughs> you know, I do it to myself too. It's very annoying, but um, it's just kind of funny. Cause like no one is the bad guy in their story. Right. So I have this, an experience of a boss that I really didn't like, but if I look back on that experience, I'm sure that they never thought of themselves as the villain in that story. They never thought of themselves as doing anything wrong. They thought of themselves as trying really hard and and maybe doing their best and, and all sorts of things. And I can give them that grace sort of rationally, maybe not emotionally sometimes, but um, there is all this like interesting stuff that happens when we start getting into that. And I do think that um, one of the interesting things that happens in the job search to, to kind of bring this conflict into the, into the realm where a lot of the listeners are, are experiencing it right now is this sort of, what you, you were talking about, these assumptions of power and dynamics and all these different things. Like this person, and, and here's just a really cliche one, like you get to an interview, you've done all this work, all this prep, all this applications to get there. And then the person hasn't read your resume and they start asking you questions and you get offended by that. And you're like, right. I can't believe this. I did all this work to get here. And this person hasn't read my resume. And I'm always like, well, think about that person's life. They probably got pulled out of a meeting. They didn't know they were interviewing today. They're not trained on how to interview. They looked at your resume, but it all just looked like jargon. There's a million things that, uh, you know, we could contextualize this as. Um, but it's really hard to get into that space and to think about it that way. Um, and one of the ways that I've, I've found helpful in my own life to get there is to use humor. I think that just like looking at everything is slightly absurd and ridiculous uh, it makes it a little bit more fun and a little bit more palatable. It's like, well, of course this person isn't ready to talk to me because they're stressed out too. And of course I'm anxious on this call, which means they're probably anxious on this call and maybe in a different way. And so I'm always curious, what can we do as individuals who are going through stressful times, um, to better prepare ourselves mentally to experience other people who are also as flawed as us? Okay, so this is such a deep and big question that I actually want to poke you on a couple of parts of it. Mm -hmm. I think we make ourselves the hero of our own story by the time we are telling it to someone else. I think more people than you might be thinking right in this minute know at certain points that they want something that isn't fair, or they want something at least that is special for them, certainly something that they know is gonna make the other person uncomfortable. We often know this. In fact, it's that kind of situation that is part of why I knew I did not want to stay in management. And I'm so much more comfortable as a consultant because it's really easy for me to see where the harms are or where the upsides could be or how we could craft a third path and not just have some black and white solution in which the house always wins, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, so I think 
many, many people do have a lot more humility than the way you described it. It's that when you're telling your friend or you're looking for sympathy, we assume that we will get more sympathy if we are the hero. But in fact, if you're really on the level with people saying, I felt terrible about this because I knew it was going to be rough for my boss. I knew I was putting her in a very bad spot and I'm sorry about that. The truth is I need to do it if I'm going to take care of myself. So, right, you could hear that and understand it and most people could. But in a weird way, I think the capitalist system and the way we do customer service has trained us to act like we are the aggrieved party because we will get more attention if we are aggrieved than if we're congenial. So I think that's a societal issue. Okay, putting that aside and going to what do you do? I'm going to take the example you gave about uh, showing up for an interview and the interviewer is not prepared or seems not to care very much or any of those things. Because the candidate has a lot on the line and they have already committed, not to the job, but to the effort for the interview. They're invested. So when the other person seems too nonchalant or out of it or any of those things, yeah, it's easy to get offended. Um, I just think whenever you see a bad thing coming, reframing is the most useful thing to do. My kids have made fun of me since they were little because whenever there was a bad driver or somebody went through a stop sign or cut me off or whatever, I would first be sarcastic. My son said he learned sarcasm in the car. Oh, that's a wonderful move, I would say. Um, but then I would say, maybe they're on their way to the hospital. And I don't know, I just developed this practice because I didn't want to be pissed off. It meant I could let it go much faster. So as soon as whether you think just like me, or I wonder what happened to the interviewer this morning, any question or prompt you can give yourself about anybody, somebody in the elevator who jostles you, um, somebody in the supermarket who's behaving badly, even people who express vitriol. And so I'll tell you one of the things I actually do and so some of my friends now do. I don't offer this in business very much because it doesn't sound businesslike. I think to myself, poor baby. And those two words enough mean Poor thing, what must have happened to you that you would behave this way? And I started this with people that I would get angry at for some reason, because then I could step away from my own anger and try to think, what's the best thing to do now? So if you see that your interviewer is stumbling, help the interviewer, because the only way to get a good result out of that interview is to have the interviewer think you're fabulous. So be fabulous. Instead of standing on ceremony about all your prep, use your prep. Oh, interviewer, let me just give you a brief background. Here are the three most important things. Here's why I think it could be so advantageous to the ABC company. Are there questions you have about my background in one, two, three? And just like wrap it up and give them a little package that includes their next question. How great would that be? Practice that a few times. And then you're ready, even for the person who runs in, doesn't even have your resume, doesn't know why they're there. At least they will walk out feeling that you are a good and gracious person they would like to work with. 
What could be better than that? I love that. I'm always saying to people when it comes to the job search, be the most helpful person, not the most knowledgeable person, because it really is true. Like whenever someone asks the question, tell me about yourself. I always find this to be the funniest one because everyone goes, well, what do they want to know? Why don't they ask a better question? And I go, reframe it in your head, reframe every interview question, but this one in particular, because what they're really saying, and I, this is like the core of a lot of my interview training is like, what they're really saying is, I have no idea how to start this conversation. Can you please start it for me? <laughs> it's like, right. they're just so You're stressed out. on the money. Yeah. Yes. And that poor yes. baby mindset is like, I, I think that that is such a great way to go through life because you're like, oh, this poor interviewer probably got pulled out of a meeting, didn't, isn't prepared, has no, probably has like to work late today because they had to do all these interviews. And it's just like, it, and it's funny because we've all been on the other side of these things, but we forget it when we're on the other yes. side, right? Like everyone has probably worked some sort of retail or serving job or something like that at some point in their lives. But then you're, I'm sure I'm guilty of this. You're on the other side and you're like, just return my purchase, like pick up the phone. And it's like, we, we lose that, but it's good to always come back to it. And I think one of the things that gets in the way is this sort of um, feeling of deserving, right? We, we see someone else who gets to be mad. I, I've definitely felt this in my life before. It's like, you're at the office and that one person just always gets to be a jerk and they're seemingly doing well in their career how come I'm not allowed to be a jerk? Like that person gets to be a jerk. We almost get jealous that certain people get to be a little bit more uh, grating and still succeed. Um, and that that jealousy kind of fuels us to be not as uh, empathetic, not as, uh, you know, caring in our work. And I think it's so funny how you put it. It's like, be fabulous rather than be jealous. But like, how do you see that jealousy um, or, you know, people trying to mimic other people, maybe on social media, maybe in the, in, you know, we've, we just went through, you know, four years of someone who just bullied and, and, you know, got a lot of great, you know, results in their life from it. And, you know, that sets examples for people to follow. And I'm curious, how do you sort of see, you know, bad leadership affecting, you know, people in the actual office and things like that? Okay. You know, you pack much too much into your too questions. much of my questions. I know. <laughs> yes. Okay. <laughs> All right. So I've had six thoughts already, mm-hmm. and I have to figure out which ones to give you. So I'm going to give you another reframe that's useful everywhere, just like poor baby. Um, I'm the host. If you become the host of the conversation, of the situation, whatever it is, it makes you responsible. There could be bad behavior going on at your dinner table, but you're the host. So you get to figure out how you want the other guests to experience what's going on, okay? Now that can be very complicated because in the same way you may not be able to remove your belligerent parent or your you know, nasty boss, but you have to think about them in some way that includes respect and maybe even some affection for other times. So hosting is another good metaphor that helps you be okay there. Um, but specifically, I think in terms of the jealousy piece, and this happens in hierarchies all the time because we see someone else raised up when we know we're doing just as much. Okay, so there are a bunch of things in there. First of all, we don't necessarily know we're doing just as much. We believe we are. (laughs) We know we're a good person. We know we're working hard. I hope that's really true. There are some people who who believe they are and aren't, or who believe they are skillful and aren't, Dunning-Kruger syndrome, and and the people who don't understand or recognize their own lack of competence. But let's say I'm terrific at the job, and someone who really is a glad-hander, loud mouth, seems to get all the elevation, and in my case, because... I'm a woman, if that person's a man, 
that's really likely. I mean, statistically, that's hugely likely. And if they're tall, even more so. So there are these weird things that do make it structurally unfair, even more so if you get into issues of race and neurodiversity, as I said before, all of that. Okay. So the first thing is to think, what is it I'm actually jealous of? And let me separate that from how angry I might be at the person I'm jealous of. What am I jealous of? Is it what they are receiving? Is it what they are able to do? Is it what they can get away with? What are the components I'm jealous of? Can I use those as prompts for myself to actually get the thing I want? Can I figure out how I could get that, not that bad person's way, but my own good way? How could I get more of that? Maybe what looks to me like bootlicking, I could use as a way of, if I stay in closer touch with my boss, and tell my boss more about what I'm actually working on, maybe my boss will understand that I'm accomplishing a lot. So can you really get information for yourself about what you want to do? And then you have to think very seriously, once you've tried to do that good work, if you still feel unrecognized, or still feel that people are wrongly elevated, you have to decide, does the leadership here have the capacity to see my value or not? Because if they actually don't, you should go look elsewhere. Go look where you will be recognized for what you can do. Don't stay, I have to caveat that. You have to pay your bills, you have to feed your kids, your elderly relatives, your pets, whatever is important to you. Do not threaten your life security. But look for ways to find a better place. If you come to the thoughtful, not knee-jerk conclusion that they will never appreciate me fully here. And one of the situations where that can come up happens less today than it used to perhaps, is when someone has grown up in a company, started there early in their career, and they may not get recognized the way someone who comes in from the outside at the same level does. So there are all kinds of challenges and reasons we might feel jealous of somebody else. But look at what's underneath that and and don't just demonize them and make them seem worse because then you won't learn anything from it we interrupt today's episode to let you know about career therapy's unstuck coaching program if you're feeling paralyzed by job search procrastination and unsure of what to do next in your career we're here to help each month as a member you will get access to two one-on-one coaching calls unlimited virtual chat with your coach via slack invitations to bi-weekly group coaching sessions, and lifetime access to our eight-part job search curriculum. Want to take your search to the next level? Head over to careertherapy.com and schedule a free 15-minute consultation to chat with me today and see if coaching is right for you. Now back to our show. It gets into this idea of, um, you know, the, the stories that form in our minds that really drive our behaviors. Right. And I like what you're saying here. Cause, um, a lot of times when people say I'm not being recognized, what really ends up happening is like, you ask them, okay, well, what do you want to be recognized for? And they're like, I, I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I have no idea. Uh, have you been tracking all your projects and successes and showing them to your boss? Well, no, they're supposed to just know. And, and I think this is where it kind of overlaps into, our personal lives. And I think this might be a fun place to take it as well, where um, you see people in relationships who are in conflict, right? And every therapist I ever talked to is like, well, 
did you ever communicate that to your partner over the last 20 years that you've been together? It's like, no, I never let them know. I've just been angry with them and taking it out on them in all these random ways. And I think so much of what you're saying here is really um, important because if we're not doing the work to show and to build those relationships and to do those things, well, of course, no one's going to know what's happening the same way you probably don't know all the stuff your boss does. And when I look back on my quote unquote bad boss, I'm like, I, I have no idea what they did all day. Like, I, I don't know what their life looked like. And I would ask that as like a joking question, like, what do they do all day? I feel like I do their entire job, but in reality, I have no idea. And so these are the funny things that when you kind of separate yourself from it, you can get a little bit of perspective. But you also throw out an idea there of like, not feeling like you're being appropriately valued. Um, and that also becomes a story in our minds because sometimes that message gets kind of funky of like, what is the appropriate level of expectation you should have for a company, right? Mm -hmm. So what are the appropriate expectations we have, we should have for these companies? Because sometimes I talk to people and I'm like, you're asking a lot from this like organization of people who are running around with their hair on fire. <laughs> like, they they, they right. don't have a lot to give. So what, what are your thoughts on that expectation piece and how we can manage our expectations? So um, this is such a real thing when people in the workplace actually feel and think that they should be treated as the full fabulous human beings they are, as if their colleagues, bosses, senior leaders were their cousins or their neighbors who, you know, don't you sometimes get annoyed at your cousins or your neighbors also? <laughs> we do, we actually do. But in this circumstance, we forget the annoying parts and what it really comes down to is, am I in the tribe or are they trying to kick me out of the tribe? Do I feel loved and safe or not? Well, really most of workplace doesn't focus on making every employee feel loved and safe. And it might be great if they did but that's not the way it's structured. It's structured on performance and money. And often there is affection and regard and recognition that goes along with that. So exactly to your point about, did you say anything? I'm going to give you a corresponding therapeutic positioning, which is, are you willing to do something? Which in workplace terms, you can think of as, are you willing to be the one who goes first? Are you willing to offer first? Are you willing to consider the other first? Whenever you're in a kind of log jam, what we do as humans, if we feel, oh, this situation is not going well, that's a situation that feels like threat. And so we have a whole bunch of those reactions and people are generally very familiar with fight and flight. There are now a whole bunch of other terms. There's freeze, there's fold. There, there are all these other terms that have now come up to describe variations and nuances about how we feel when we're under threat. And therefore what we do almost as if we were animals, because of course we are animals. We just tart it up with language and the storytelling you've been talking about. So when we feel under threat, one of the things we do, which is um, a form of flight, is we actually detach a little. Well, if they don't appreciate me, I'm not gonna give them so much. And uh, for anybody who is only hearing audio, I crossed my arms and I shook my head, you know, to show just how annoyed I am. And you can picture me 
sort of glaring and shaking. These are the things we do. Except people actually do them. And that's no good because then you, you make yourself stuck. Once you decide, I'm not going to be generous anymore. What the other person notices is not that you're upset. They notice that you're not participating. And in the workplace, as soon as somebody notices you're not participating, they think, I can't count on that person. And they withdraw. So you actually were the first mover in breaking up the relationship, no matter what they did before you withdrew. If you want that relationship to work, as opposed to deciding in a clear-sighted, open-hearted way, this is not the place for me, I can do better. If you at all want this to work, you have to uncross your arms and hold still and think, how could I participate here in a way that the other person would notice and feel good about? And when you go first, you won't always get the reaction you want, but often you will get a better reaction than you would by anything else you could do. That is so true. And you could literally replace every, every word of work with relationship in there, and it would be perfectly the same. We just did two episodes on the similarities between dating and, and finding a job and dating apps and job boards. And so much of this overlaps, like that is exactly what happens in relationships that don't go well, right? One person's like, I always go first, so I'm going to stop going first. But then they don't give the other person that information. So then it just goes back and forth until you're cold and it dissolves, right? right. And I think your point about um, people treating their job like a cousin or like a friend or a neighbor, things like that. I think companies, the startup world got that message 15 years ago, but then they almost like weaponized it in a way, in, in a really unfortunate way where they started saying, we are family. We are your best friends. We do want to take care of you. And then it was used to overwork people and it was used to pay people less. And it was used to create these situations where people were so invested. I, I remember working with someone once and she's like, I can't ask for a raise because I know what the financial situation of the company is. And I was like, if the company can't afford to give you any raise, you need to leave. Like, this is crazy. And, and these are the unfortunate things that happen when, um, you know, we don't fully understand the boundaries and we don't set clear boundaries and we don't know what the boundaries are anymore. And I think, you know, with working from home and with all the changes in the world that, that tends to happen. And so we really do have to spend a lot of time figuring out ourselves and then showing up to work in a way in which we can be that helpful person. And so as we kind of shift away from the interpersonal into the internal, um, I, we have a few minutes left here and I, I definitely want to touch on this. Like there's a lot of internal conflict that people have that they struggle with. And I'm always so interested in how that affects their conflicts with others, right? If you don't know what you want and then you're wishy-washy, people don't know how to treat you and then that creates conflicts as well. So what are some of the in, in, internal personal <laughs> instead of interpersonal uh, or just personal, I guess, uh, conflicts that you see arise in people um, that then affect their external behavior? So I want to give you an example that comes directly from what you were just saying. The idea of we're a family. I work with a lot of family businesses. And um, if you are not a family member, there may be family feeling, but it's still a business. And Everybody on both sides needs to know that. When you talked about people overextending themselves because startups understood they could take advantage of that, that's just as true in personal life, in relationship, right? If we have no boundaries, we will be taken advantage of. At least in the startup world, there was a concierge and you could get your dry cleaning done on premises. Okay, you got something back for that. Sometimes uh, this is the people who say, you know, 
They treat me like I'm a doormat. Well, who lay down in front of the door? So you have to take response. You have to look at yourself and say, what's making me unhappy about this? And how did my actions contribute? Because expecting the other person to change if you yourself don't look at yourself differently you can't even get yourself to change how are you going to get them to change so um all the stuff about emotional intelligence and self-awareness and self-regulation i think are really important in this internal work because the only way we feel better for more than five minutes is if we're doing it for ourselves. It is not, I mean, the promotion is great and um, being called to the front in the Friday team meeting is wonderful, but that's over then. We're still the person we are with whatever hurt, wounded, frightened feelings we've had since we were three unless we work on them all the time. And so whether, whether we use um, mindfulness as a technique to calm the brain, whether we use exercise as a way to both uh, release and build up energy, these are, this is the inside job conversation. You know, these are the things we have to do for ourselves so we can feel like we can have a decent day almost every day, no matter what the weather, and recover from the blows that are going to come because we happen to be alive and in society and in relationship with other humans whose first concern, of course, is themselves. They may care about us a lot, but they have the same fight, flight, freeze, fold, reactions going on that we do. And we don't know, oh, I'm thinking of something that happened early in my consulting career, where a very senior guy was believed by working people as just being a mean man. And he went into the break room, I was in the break room, and he sneezed and got his soda and left. I remember this like it was yesterday. And the woman I was talking to said, see, he didn't say good morning. He looked angry. And I was like, he went for a soda and he sneezed. We were talking. He didn't want to interrupt. And it turned out when I actually met him, he was a very deep introvert. Not the person who was going to greet anyway. But this woman was convinced that he was against her. You have to start with you and where you are. And whether you say poor baby or whether you say, I'm the host of the break room. Let me greet that man. The ways in which we challenge ourselves then make us more capable of dealing with whatever crappy thing is happening at work. It may mean we don't have to withdraw as quickly. It may mean we can help somebody else who's in distress, whether it's our colleague or somebody we report to. So um, I had a practice a number of years ago when I worked in New York City. And I would walk down the block and there were plenty of people to look at. And I would look at every person and think, What's the thing that makes that person lovable and loved? And I, you know, you'd be walking a lot in the city and I would do this a lot. And it was so helpful in realizing that everybody, me included, had all kinds of reasons they could be loved and lovable, whether that was obvious or not. And by doing work on yourself, and thinking compassionately about other people, you do strengthen yourself. There's a whole science now about self-compassion, really important, and I can give you references for books and seminars and stuff. Um, 
anything you do to exercise your own muscles for self-care, I don't mean going to a spa. I mean, actually taking care of the hurt person inside and self-compassion and hope for yourself strengthens you so that you can then share that the way you might your lunch with somebody else. And that's part of how you just make a better workplace and one you want to work in. That's so key. And I love how you talked about walking down the street in, in New York doing that because it's like most people walk down the street in New York going, how's this person going to hurt me? How's that person going to hurt me? That's you know? not true. Yeah, that's kidding. too drastic. Don't say that. <laughs> Got to go to the extremes for the social media. But uh, there is there's so much in what you just said there. And I really love it because, you know, if we take care of that hurt person in us, it gives us the room to take care of others. And, you know, there is that that mantra of like, you know, set your own, you know, boat straight before you go trying to tell people how to sail theirs. And um, I want to sort of end on this concept that I, I got from, I think your TED talk, where you talked about the different ways to improve our uh, communication skills to reduce conflict. And, and you broke it down into the lizard listening reframing the negative, which we spent a lot of time on today, the evil logic check and the elephant cards. Um, but I want to focus in on the evil logic checks. I think that kind of ties into a lot of what we've been talking about today. And I love your phrase of why would a smart person do such a stupid thing? And I was just want to end today on that idea of, you know, what, what can people take away from this evil logic check idea and apply in their life? You talked about people being the hero of their own story and complaining about others. And that is the way we hear about most of what goes wrong at work. Somebody's complaining. And sometimes they're complaining about the work, but more often they are complaining about a person. And so when somebody in a client company or somebody I coach is complaining about a person more than once, I say, is that person evil? Because, you know, that's such a ridiculous thing to say that then they can say, oh, no, they're not evil. They get on my nerves. I hate when I have to talk to them about thus and so, etc. But okay, you're talking about them like they're really bad. Because what is not good for us, we assume is purposeful, meant to hurt us. You know, we blow it up into this ridiculous popover that doesn't really exist. As we said before, the other person's just trying to do their job, they're muddling through. So thinking about, okay, they're not evil. So they're really being stupid. Let's, let's reduce it to third grade level. They're really being stupid, but they're smart. Why would a smart person do a stupid thing? They must have a reason. And that's the critical piece. They must have a reason. It could be that they didn't have time, they were unprepared, they weren't told they were coming to the meeting. It could be that there's a bigger problem that I don't know about that they're actually focusing on. It could be that they don't know how to tell me a hard thing because they haven't done all the compassion practice and you know, self-calming and whatever that I've just said to do. But they have a real reason. And so if you can think about it first and maybe even extend to them the trust to put it on the table and say to them, you said this thing that didn't make sense to me because it seemed like you were trying to get me to stop doing the thing I need to be doing and it's making a problem for me. I know you wouldn't have wanted to make a problem for me. So what else is going on that I'm not understanding? And put it on you. What else is there that I'm not understanding? Maybe they'll tell you something useful, or maybe they'll just say, you know, I couldn't get my candy bar out of the vending machine. And <laughs> like, I was pissed off when I walked in. I'm sorry. Give me a minute. I'm going to shake it off. We never know. It could be the most trivial thing, or they could have a dying loved one asking if you have the strength and the courage and the balance to do that can then help you deal with whatever the reality is. 
I love that. Yeah. Just like Taylor Swift, shake it off. Right. (laughs) And one of the things that you mentioned in that story of, uh, you know, the person that came into the the common room and didn't give the greeting that just triggers in me, like, well, the other person didn't greet them either. And that's something you called out as well. It's like, we have to, if we're going to expect things from people, we have to do those things as well. It's like, it's, it's kind of like the, my friends never call me. It's like, do you ever call your friends? You know, that kind of back and forth thing. Um, So I really appreciate you laying all this out for us today, because there's so much in this conflict conversation that we can work on internally. We can work on interpersonally. And I just want to end on this idea of most people are not trying to be malicious. They're just maybe being stupid in that moment. (laughs) So we'll end there. Uh, Liz, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing all your wisdom. Where can people find out more about what you're working on? Uh, The best place is my website, uh, www.lizkislik.com. Because there, Martin, if they want, there's a free ebook about the interpersonal aspects of conflict and how you can work on that. And I've got 10 years worth of writing there. There's a lot of stuff uh, that I hope is helpful. And of course, also on LinkedIn and Twitter. Wonderful. And everyone go check out Liz's TED Talk as well. It's very good. Uh, So Liz, thank you for joining us. It's been great to be with you. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to this episode today. I really appreciate your support of what we're building here at Career Therapy as we continue to try and explore the hidden side of modern work and tell some of the stories that maybe don't get enough light shed on them. If you enjoyed what you listened to today, I hope you will leave us a review on iTunes. Uh, Subscribe to this wherever you're listening or watching on YouTube, Spotify, etc. And uh, share this with some friends who you know are going through similar experiences and looking to build their career and, and gain some insights along the way. Again, thank you so much for stopping by and I wish you the best. I'll see you on the next episode.